Satan is real. Demons are real. The spirit world is real. They are organized in an extremely organized army. They are actively engaged in this world. It's our Western mindsets that kind of make us speculative about the actions or the, act, or the activities of Satan in the demonic realm. But they are just as real today and just as active today as they were in Jesus' time. But they are real. The battle rages and it is vicious and it is intense. It's a war between two rulers. One, the most high God. The other is called the God of this world. Identified in 2 Corinthians 4 as Satan himself. You see, Satan rules his kingdom or his domain, the domain of darkness. Colossians 1 tells us this. Or really, his kingdom is this, this fallen world in which we live. God rules his kingdom called by several names, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the son of his love. Both rulers and kingdoms have a strategy. They have a plan. Both are advancing or at least trying to advance against the other. The battle is either for the salvation or the destruction of a human soul. Satan is out to mar and destroy the very ones who are created in the image of the very God he hates. May we never underestimate the hatred with which Satan hates God. Viciously hates him. Because God is his victor. You see, he knows that a direct assault on the kingdom of God, or at least on the throne of God, is foolish. He can't do that. He would be disintegrated in seconds. He knows he can't have a direct assault, a frontal assault. So what does he do? But he goes after those that are created in the image of God, the human being, setting out to absolutely destroy them, as we'll see in the text tonight. You see, but at the end of the day, let's be clear, the reality is that only one of these kingdoms is truly advancing. There's one that's advancing, and the scriptures tell us that that kingdom is going to advance, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Period. There is no question about it. They cannot, they will not ever, ever prevail against the kingdom of God. Cannot happen. Now, I want to be clear about something, that what we are talking about now is not in any way to be confused, confused with what would be called philosophical dualism. Something that you would see in like Star Wars where you have good and you have evil, the dark side, the light side, and, and there's this battle that goes on and you're never really sure who's going to win. You're just kind of hoping, so to speak, I was going to say praying, but we're not sure to who you'd be praying in dualism, uh, but you're never really sure the outcome. You're just really hoping that good prevails. That's not this. That is not this. This will be made crystal clear by the end of the message. You see, no, God, God himself rules supreme. He rules over everything that exists, all kingdoms, and even the God of this world, Satan, and all of his followers can do absolutely nothing without his allowance, without his approval, and it is a certain and absolute fact that Satan can no more than sneeze without God's allowance. 
metaphorical sneeze. I don't know if Satan really sneezes. But he can't. He can't. See, the aspect of God's kingdom in the Gospels is one that advances through the spreading of the gospel. Captives are set free. In, in, in Matthew chapter 3, or Mark chapter 3, G- Jesus uh, defines his kingdom basically like this. He said there is what's called the strong man, and he's only bound by one stronger when one, someone stronger comes in, binds him, and plunders his house. And that is Jesus' way of saying, my ministry is doing exactly that in this world, and it is evident by my miracles, and especially the casting out of demonic spirits. That is, I have bound him and I am plundering him and I am taking the treasure away from him at my will which are the, the, the souls of human beings and I'm setting captives free and that's what Jesus describes his own ministry you see in, in, in Mark especially every encounter that Jesus has with demonic spirits which is quite often is a clash between these two kingdoms so to speak And as Jesus frees men and women who are demonized, his kingdom scores another victory and it advances. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me tonight, or if you don't have a Bible with you, please look on the insert, the the, the folder that was given to you. And we're going to read the story in Mark chapter 5. Pay very attention, close attention to the language that is used. It says this, And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he always crying, he's always crying out. He's cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, he fell down before him and crying out in a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of the man you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city in, in the country. People came out to see, uh, to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed or the demonized man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demonized man or demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He did not permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord 
has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. With that in mind now, let's understand that this is not a story about Jesus and a demonized man. This is not about Jesus and a demoniac. The two main characters in this story are not Jesus and the man. Those aren't the two main characters. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't even address the man, so to speak. But the whole conversation is between Jesus and the demon who's going to identify himself as legion. As a matter of fact, when you read through the stories, you just notice that Mark doesn't, he, he doesn't record any dialogue between Jesus and the man until the very end of the passage. And so the story begins really in, in chapter 4, verse 35. There, we were told that Jesus had gotten into the boat on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. That is Jewish territory, right? And, and along with the 12, he goes to the other side, which is the western side. And in between, there's the violent storm where Jesus silences the storm with a word. Now they arrive on the other side in, in what is now Gentile territory, of course, to a place that Mark simply says is the country or the region of the Gerasenes. We know it's Gentile because simply there's a herd of pigs running around. Now the scene opens with Jesus getting out of the boat. Now as he does, Mark uses one of his, most, uh, his favorite words. If you read through Mark, you see this word coming up over and over and over again. Immediately, he says... A man came out of the tombs who had an unclean spirit, or that is a demon. And he came running at Jesus. Now, you can already sense that this man, as he's doing this, is on a collision course with Jesus. I mean, he's running at breakneck speed. Now, I want us to think for a moment. What does this look like? I love to take us sometimes, when you read the narratives, these are written in a way so that we should be able to drop ourselves into the story and feel ourselves as one of those within the story would have seen it in the first century. How would they feel? What were they looking at? And so I want to kind of try to drop us into that. Now think for a moment what it would have looked like, especially if you're one of the 12. They pull the boat onto the shore, and, and you could just think, maybe some of them have their backs to land, and they're pulling the boat up, and they turn around, and all of a sudden, there's a man coming, completely stark naked, screaming, wailing, maybe even frothing at the mouth. He's covered in mud, and probably even has remnants of either dried blood or, or blood on him from trying to cut himself, and he's running directly at you. That would be a little unnerving. Could you just imagine some of them jumping back into the boat, wanting to push back out into the water, maybe as quickly as possible, grab Jesus and run? Or, or, or can you maybe see, and this is what I think is more likely, can you see more, maybe more than one picking up an oar to use as a club or grabbing some fishing net to throw over him? Can you just not picture Peter grabbing an oar, getting ready to swing for the fences on this guy if he comes running up? I mean, he's going to go after him, maybe. You don't know for sure, but it's unnerving nonetheless. To them, it probably seemed like the man was going to attack Jesus. And they knew they were either probably going to have to run or protect the Lord, one or the other. But you notice, Jesus doesn't move. He stands there. 
Just like the story before where he stood very calmly in the face of a raging sea, he now stands very calmly in front of a raging demoniac. And there he stands. Then he allows him to approach. There's no record in anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus does not allow a hurting, desperate human being to approach. And so he does here. Fitting with Mark's theme now, Jesus is going to bring wholeness and healing to a desperate man. That's what he does all the way through Mark, by the way. When you read through the Gospel of Mark, everybody who comes to Jesus, you read through it. Everyone who comes to Jesus is in absolute desperate straits, and they have exhausted anything and every human possible remedy. They're at their end, every one of them. There is nothing anymore any, any human being can do for them. They're done. They're exhausted. And so you see that here. Folks, like every other person, this is what's going on. So Jesus lets them approach. And as we begin through this passage, Mark is going to tell the story in seven different stages. And it just flows right through. Number one, you can see it in your notes. In number one, you have first, you have the power and the strength of the demon himself. First one described. Notice now the repetitive negative statements. Notice how Mark lays it out. Masterful storyteller. No one could bind him, not even with chains. No one had the strength to subdue him. Notice the, the, the extremes in the language. Actually, the original language stresses the demoniac strength by emphasizing the chain, this iron chain. He, he emphasizes that. He moves it to the front of the sentence, which they can do, and it basically literally can read, not even with chains, no one could bind him. That's the emphasis. For, for when they tried to bind him, the text says, and they did so often, by the way, says the text, they did so often, most likely either to protect themselves or the man. We don't know for sure. Probably more themselves. He would snap the iron chains like twigs. The demon in the man was so strong. He was too strong for any human being to deal with. And then again, Jesus is no ordinary man. All human efforts have failed. Did you catch that? No one could do anything for him anymore. No one could do it except, at least humanly speaking, this is hopeless. This is absolutely hopeless. And as such a description is given, it's highlighting here the immense strength of the demonic spirit, but it is also anticipating that if there is to be any hope for this man, the only hope that there will be is if someone or something with far greater superior strength and authority steps in and does something about it. But it's going to not just be an ordinary human being because he's already exhausted all that. So something else has to step in. Number two. You have the suffering and unrelenting pain of the man. Friends, this should just break our hearts. Tears should come to our eyes as we read this. Again, the extreme language, night and day. 
never ceasing. He's living among the dead, not the living. He's living in these tombs. They were subterranean caves. This is where the poorest of the poor would bury their dead. And that is the residence of this man. He's cruelly thrown out of society. It says he cries out. He's howling. He's cutting himself. These are all probably attempts to end his miserable existence. Obviously, the demonic hosts are attempting to destroy him because that's what they do. They destroy. They kill. That's what they do. It's one author who calls this one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. As you read this, you find that it is more of a description of a wild animal than it is a human being. You can see the way in which the demonic spirit so totally defaced a human being created in the image of God that it has to be described like a wild animal. As a matter of fact, the word for subdue is what's used of taming a wild beast. This is a human being. And that's the way he has to be described. Because this is the primary work of Satan. That's what he does on his side of the war. He, do, he, he, he seeks to deface, to destroy the ones who were created in the image of God the Most High. He wants to bring them to the point of wanting to end their existence. That's what he does. He wants to send the human beings into a place, into a hopeless state where they believe themselves to be beyond the reach of anyone who cares or anyone who has the ability to help. He wants to push them into a life that will end in despair. I don't know if there is any worse human emotion than despair. Why? Because despair has given up all hope. Despair is the emotion that there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Despair says this is the way your life will be. It will never get better. You might as well just get used to that. One of the lies of the enemy is this. I will always be here. You'll never get rid of me. Get used to it. That's the way it is. Despair, no doubt, setting in. You know, I'm not sure, but I think many of us can identify with this man. Now, we may not be demonized. No. But I think there's some here who are at the very end of your rope. You feel like you're hanging on by a thread. You may be suffering the continual guilt of a sin that has been mastering you for a long time and you just simply can't break free. You're at the point where you feel, man, all hope is lost. I've gone to counselor after counselor. And nothing's happening. This is just going to be my life. Maybe you've been mistreated by those around you that you feel have now ostracized you and you feel all alone. No one seems to care. Can I say to you tonight, Jesus cares. Jesus cares. You see, he's gone to great lengths to reach this man and to minister to him. And we don't exactly know why Jesus came across the lake into Gentile territory. But you know what? It would not surprise me if Jesus got on that boat and went across that lake for this man. For him. He sought him out. This man who was thrown out of his community. This man who was repulsed by men is precious to Jesus. 
See, to demons, this man is nothing more than a worthless pawn in their war against God. He's nothing more than a pawn in his community. He's, to them, he's feared. He's unwanted. He's thrown out. But to Jesus, this man is of great value. To Jesus, this man is worth saving. And that's the way it is with all human beings, folks. We are pawns to Satan, but of infinite value to God. And he runs to Jesus. Three, you see the terror now. This is where it gets awesome. The terror of the demon before Jesus. Notice how this lays out. He approaches the Lord. He falls flat on his face before him. This is a position, by the way, of an inferior being in the presence of one who is far superior. The demon, terrified, the voice that comes out, by the way, is certainly not the man's himself, but it is very striking. Now, now, now think this through. This is very striking that while the voice is certainly demonic, this is not what you would expect given the description of him before, is it? I mean, this is not this, this voice of a ferocious, defiant, terrifying demon that would have been commonly heard? No. It's not the voice of one you would expect given the description of this man, this uncontrollable demon who can snap iron chains that everybody feared. That's not the voice at all. What do you hear? A pitiful, whimpering, terrified voice. That's what comes out. Totally defensive. Totally defensive. Begging. Did you notice in the text how often the word beg is used? Just over and over and over. Now the, now, now the demon is begging. You see, here's the thing. This demon is well aware. The people around are not. But the demonic spirit, he's well aware that he is in the presence of a far superior power. He's well aware of that. He speaks and interestingly, you notice interesting, he calls Jesus by name. How would he know? He gets out of the boat all for, for what the people on the shore knew. This was just a bunch of Jewish fishermen. But this man, this demonic spirit knew who got out of that boat. He calls him by name. And he utters a phrase. What have you to do with me? Or what do we have in common? Or even yet, it could be better translated maybe, why do you interfere with me? And then in a... It, in a heart-stopping declaration, he uses a phrase nowhere else used. He says, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the son of the most high God. This is a cry from the mouth of a, uh, this is the cry from the mouth of a demon of divinity. He's in, he is very aware that he is in the presence of one of divine origin. He's well aware of the fact, if you think about it, he's well aware of the fact that he is now in the presence of the divine creator, his creator. That's, he knows who he's standing and laying in front of. You know, the one whom he foolishly rebelled against? That's now who's walking in what he thinks is his domain. And you know, he knows how foolish it was to now rebel against Jesus, but he did. Yet here he is, and he knows he is in deep weeds, as they say. 
He knows it. And this is in direct contrast to the description that's given earlier. Where he was the strong one. You remember? He was the strong one. The man is, is pitiful. The man was helpless. Now, guess what? He is the one who is helpless. In front of him, he is now filled. In, that is, he is now the helpless one, the pitiful one, laying in front of the one with far superior power than him. What a role, what a reversal of roles. Direct contrast. And he's filled with terror gets better. 10 to 13, you now have the superior power and the authority of Jesus. This is where I believe the kingdoms, so to speak, are colliding. And I, I, you know, I use the term collide. It's not to be thought of these two kingdoms as just simply hitting each other and bouncing off like a collision. No, that's not really what it is. The reality is, is that the one kingdom, that is the kingdom of God, is steamrolling the kingdom of darkness. And he plants it firmly in the ground under his feet. Jesus the victor. The son of the most high. The son of God. Jesus the Messiah is now in direct confrontation with a humanly uncontrollable powerful host of the kingdom of darkness. There's no comparison. Absolutely none. How awesome this is. I mean, look what the demon says. This just blows my mind. You have to almost laugh. It's okay to laugh at a demonic spirit, by the way. It's okay to do that. And, and I, you almost want to do that. Look what he says. I adjure you. I beg you. I plead with you by God. What? Who knows why he even said that? You talk about stumbling and falling all over your place. I plead with you by God? Don't torment me? How ironic. The one who showed no mercy is now pleading for it. The one who wanted to destroy is now pleading not to be destroyed. You see, demons know full well, please understand this. Demons know full well their end. They know it fully. They know that they are destined for the lake of fire, as Revelation 20.10 tells us. They will be tempted there, are tormented there, day and night. And they don't have a redeemer. They know that is coming. That's why Matthew records this story where he has the demon saying, Have you come to torment us or judge us before our time? You know, there's an incident that I know of, of a person who was demonized in a counseling session. And the demonic spirit coming out of the person, the voice actually said the words in a very faint whisper, my time is short. He knew it. You see, folks, it seems that God, for reasons known only to him, has given a time for the enemy and his minions to do their work of destruction, but it's only for so long. It's not forever. They can't go on forever. It's going to be stopped. And they know they don't have much time. And the destruction that they are allowed to inflict is limited. They don't have unlimited power. They don't have all the time in the world they want. It is, it is controlled. It is, it is under the sovereign rule of God. And while God does allow them a certain amount of freedom, please know that even if you're in a tormented state tonight, they still are on a very short leash. And they can do nothing except which God allows. 
See, they're not free to do what they want, no matter how much they want to lie to us. They can't. That's clearly seen here. They are pleading with Jesus. And the other thing that kind of makes you smile, they're trying to bargain with him. Did you notice that? They're trying to bargain with Jesus. He demands the demon's name, to which he responds, my, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, we don't really know what he means by that exactly. It's not important. It may be that he's trying to intimidate Jesus, maybe just letting him know, hey, I'm not alone in here. There are many of us. Uh, I got backup. I don't know. <laughs> you know what is so awe-inspiring is that here we have, no, 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 catch this. You don't have one demon laying before Jesus prostrate on the ground. You have a host of them. Well, there's many. There's a bunch of us in here. Well, who cares? You're all laying down. You're all flat out on the ground, prostrate, prostrate before the one and only God. One man. Who cares that you're a legion? That's what's so inspiring here. You see, to man, Jesus is, the, this man, Jesus is his savior. Jesus is his deliverer. To the demonic world, oh no, he is their tormentor and victor. You know, I can't help but think, I mean, just looking at this scene, how different would our lives be if we truly and absolutely knew who Jesus was and his power and his authority, if we knew it to the extent of this demonic spirit? How different would our lives be knowing that we are children of God, knowing the power that Jesus has? Would we not be more bold in sharing Christ? Would we never fear our circumstances if we knew what this demon knows? I mean, we know it intellectually, but this one knew it experientially. And he cowers. How much different would our lives be if we knew his absolute power and acted on it? Text says, there's a great herd of swine, roughly 2,000, on a nearby hill. The demons beg him to send them there. Verse 12. Now, again, as they try to bargain, you notice Jesus doesn't. He doesn't bargain. He judges. Jesus doesn't bargain here. It says he allows their request. There's no arguments going on here. They're begging him and he allows it. He had authority and power to send them to the abyss. And they're pleading with Jesus not to do, what they, to do that to them in Luke's account. Don't send us to the abyss, please. He could have wiped them out of existence. They knew it. But he shows that not only can, now catch it here, not only can he cast them out of the man, but he will control where they go. That's the authority that is rolling out here. Not only can I get you out of there, I can tell you where you're going to go. I'm going to control your destination. And 13, it clearly says, he gives them permission. He allows it. Once again, now there's speculation as to why the demons want to go into the swine and even more so, why does Jesus even allow it? But without going into all the details, I think I had kind of an aha moment here. Because I, I think the answer is pretty straightforward, but you know, don't, I'm not going to the stake for this, but here's what I think Jesus does it. If he simply sends them to the abyss, 
It's in the spiritual realm and those who are watching don't really see it and don't really know that it happened. But if he sends them to the swine and they see what that happens there, then everybody around sees very distinctly the power of Jesus because they are watching what happens here. They see it go there and they see the effect and that glorifies Christ all the more. They see it visibly what has happened. And also, I think in doing so, their true intent is even seen more clearly as the swine drown. They show this is what we wanted to do to this man, but we couldn't. They destroy. But God in his province wouldn't let them do it to the man. See, this man was preserved. No matter how Satan wanted to destroy him, no matter how much Satan wanted to kill him, he couldn't because God would not allow it. You know, I referred back to a person that was in a counseling session that was struggling with demonization. And I, uh, I had heard that what had happened within this counseling session was uh, the spirit himself actually said the words, I've been trying to kill her since the womb, but he won't let me. He won't let me. You'd be glad to know that that person not only was delivered that day, but is gloriously converted in living for Christ. Amen. You'll be, we, yeah, I think we could do that. Number five, there's the new state of the man. The end result here is staggering. Just as, notice that just as vivid a description that Mark gives for the suffering, he now gives for the healing. Notice how vivid it is. The swine herdsmen are so shaken by all that they saw, they race to town, they tell everyone, and they all come running back to see. Now, nothing could have ever prepared them, because they all knew this man, and nothing could have prepared them with what they now see, and the description of this man goes on. The mercy that the Lord has shown him, what does it say? He is now sitting with Jesus, quiet and peaceful, not living among the tombs. He's now clothed. He's no longer naked. Sign of wellness and wholeness. He's in his right mind. He's not crying aloud at night. He was once alienated. Now he can go home. One author has said this. This is a, a picture of discipleship and salvation. But the townspeople react. The herdsmen run. They tell the town. They all come back out to look. They look around. And notice what they fear most. Now think of the scene. You see 2,000 pigs floating in the water. Now, you might think they would say, what happened to my, that's my livelihood. You just killed them all. What am I going to eat? No more bacon. <laughs> Tragic enough. But that's not what unnerves them. What does? Jesus. That's who unnerves them. You see, just like the storm before that became tranquil at the command of Jesus, this man becomes tranquil at the command of Jesus. And they too are afraid, just as the disciples were at the stilling of the storm. Why? Because Jesus is disturbing. Do you ever think of that? It's Jesus who disturbs them. They're afraid. Once again, why? He's done what only God can do. They couldn't subdue this guy with chains. Jesus frees him with a word. When they get the full story, 
both of what happened to the man and the pigs, they don't wonder and ask him, to, hey, you know, this is something. Stay among us. You're a prophet. You're a healer. This is great. Let us go get it. No. They say, get out of here. They, get, they want him gone. They would prefer not to have such a disturbing presence. See, as afraid as they were of the man with the demons, they're now more afraid of Jesus. And they want him gone from their midst, just like the demonic spirit did. Whose side do they go to? They want Jesus out of there. Because why? Because they sense one more powerful than legion is now present. And if we couldn't control that, we'll never control this. You need to leave. You see, they feel safer with demons who torture people. You see, that they're familiar with. They're very uncomfortable, on the other hand, with one who clearly demonstrates a superior power because that they're not familiar with even though that's exactly what frees people. You see, with demons, they feel that there are ways that we can somewhat control them. Chaining, banishing, and the like. But this one, you can't control him. Who knows what mischief he would cause? Yet this shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, we often experience such reactions in our own day. Many have had the experience of telling others all the Lord has done for them. How we may have freed them from drugs or alcohol and other sorts of pains and sufferings in life, both physical and spiritual. And as you tell others, you fully expect them to be excited for you and, and want you to have, you know, ironically, you find they reject you. Maybe even ridicule, ostracize. But here as always, Jesus is a lightning rod. You see, when Jesus is seen for who he is, he's either going to draw people or repel them. But no one stays neutral. They never do. We must accept the fact that this world is hostile to Jesus because it is the kingdom and the domain of the dark one, Satan. It always will be hostile to him and those who are his. Jesus told us this. They hated me, they'll hate you. They want to kill me, they will want to kill you. But take heart, what? I've overcome the world. It'll always be hostile to Christ, especially when he's presented for who he is. He's not a friendly, loving, meek, and mild Jesus who simply just uh, seeks to be our friend and make us happy. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not as one news commentator always calls him, the philosopher Jesus. No, 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 this Jesus is unnerving. You see, he's the Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is a Jesus who has unparalleled authority and power. This is a Jesus who is mighty to save. A Jesus who triumphs over the satanic realm and who crushes them. This is a warrior. The Jesus we are reminded of in the Chronicles of Narnia. I love the line when it's asked of the Christ figure, Aslan, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, this, this Jesus the world will never accept. See, they want a Jesus they can control, a Jesus who won't ask too much of them, a Jesus who will do their bidding. 
We live in a culture where you can talk about all religion all you want, folks. The wonder of religion, the beauty of it all, and, and on and on and on. The tranquility that it brings and your, your, your this practice and your meditations and your yoga and all these things that you can do and all of that. But you talk religion all you want. Bring up Jesus. Bring up the real Jesus. Oh, the way, the truth, and the life. That's different. That's a different story. See, religion is safe. Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't. See, Jesus makes demands of his followers. He calls them to repent, deny themselves, lay down their lives, lay down their, lay down their lives, take up their cross and follow him. And in the end, that's what this man does. But though the world will not accept that, Jesus, some will. Some will. For those who are in need and in humility, they seek after him. They find a Jesus who says, come to me, all you who labor, all you who have a he or a heavy laden, I will give you rest. And finally, the response of the healed man. Can you imagine the feeling in this man's soul? He must have just sat there. I can just see him sitting on a log by a fire, staring off a little bit with a grin on his face, kind of like, Wow, joy welling up inside, tears in his eyes. Most certainly, this is the first time he's had experienced peace and tranquility in who knows how many years. And Jesus honors the wishes of the townspeople when he begins to depart. Jesus will never force himself on anyone. This man says, I want to come with. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And Jesus you notice that he doesn't want to go home. He, this, this man says, I want to follow you. Uh, he doesn't say, I want to go home and pack. I, I want to go say goodbye. You know, he says, I want to get into the boat now. I'll leave it all behind. Because if, after experiencing the liberating power of Christ, what is there in this world to even hold on to? Nothing. See, Jesus has another mission for him. He turns him into a missionary. Did you notice? Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And the man obeys with great joy. He proclaims what Jesus has done. And even though the cities and the towns reject Jesus, he always leaves a remnant of his presence. He will always leave a witness to his power to free the most desperate and seemingly hopeless causes. His mercy is great. His power is awesome. His authority is unmatched. And his kingdom is unstoppable. Let me ask you one simple question. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know the real one? Do you know the Jesus who frees the captives, who heals the brokenhearted, who binds the wounds of the wounded? Do you know him? You see, in the end, every human being that exists is going to be in one of these two kingdoms. There is no third. You're either blinded in the kingdom of darkness awaiting to meet Jesus, the judge who will not bargain, or you're going to meet the Son of the Most High God, your Lord and your Savior, living in the kingdom of God. Knowing the one who loves you enough to save you and make you whole. You see, only one Jesus saves and yet he's the one that is the most resisted and rejected. And I want to urge you this evening, do not leave this evening without knowing the real, saving, powerful, authoritative, loving Jesus. Pray with me.
Father, we do stand in awe of the power you have. You are, this world is not out of your control. Satan can roam for a while, but he's under your control. He's under your thumb. He can only do what you allow. And Lord, for reasons that only you understand, you allow him to inflict pain at times. But we thank you for the fact that you've also sent your son to bring healing and wholeness by the death and resurrection. The power that he has conquered sin, he has conquered death, and we look forward to the day that is coming when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more sickness, death, or dying, no more torments. It will all be done. And we praise you and thank you for the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.